We, the members of the secret order of alchemical actors, do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. I know many of our U.S. listeners, and maybe even some of our listeners overseas, are feeling a bit tense about the U.S. election, so I thought it might be nice to bring all of you a little extra OC this week. We've been hearing from lots of folks since March telling us that we've been good company in difficult times, and that really means a lot to me and and to all of my alchemical actors. When the pandemic first struck, I, I tried to give back a bit to our community with some extra episodes, so... Today I'd like to revive that effort as uh, trouble seems to loom over us yet again with a rising second wave of cases and really whatever this election holds in store for our political future, which will inevitably include at least some unrest, uh, at least here in the U.S. As cases begin to rise again for a second wave of pandemic infections, we had a listener request from one of our patrons, Kaylee, to revisit the pandemic theme we explored in March and April. Shout out to Kaylee and all of our patrons um, who who really make all this possible um, and encourage me in the work that I'm doing here uh, with, with so many with a growing group of folks, not only um, listening and and reviewing, um, um, but on our 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 Patreon. It really just uh, gives me the motivation uh, to do stuff like a little extra episode here and there. Um, So thanks to Kaylee uh, for the inspiration, and and thanks to all of you for for listening, for subscribing, for rating, reviewing, and uh, for joining us on Patreon. That's occultconfessions.com. Click on Donate. Uh, So it seemed to me uh, like Kaylee's suggestion was uh, a terrific way into a pandemic update. Kaylee works in healthcare and wanted to hear from our resident microbiologist and friend of the show, Dr. Matt Hatkoff. He's going to be back uh, in our alchemical podcastosphere uh, to help me understand what's going on and where it's going. But uh, before we get to Matt's update, I'm going to tackle an issue that's been on my mind quite a bit lately. And it's related to both the pandemic and our political climate. For those of you who don't know, my name is Dr. Rob C. Thompson. I am the supreme hierophant of our secret order of alchemical actors. And I am coming to you all alone today. Uh, That is until I invite Matt in and change up my setup here. So Matt and I introduced a special unit into our Team Tot seminar on fringe science this semester. Uh, And that unit was about plague and conspiracy. I should say it is about because we're in process now. So I found myself researching conspiracies surrounding our current plague. We talked about early COVID conspiracy theories when I first had Matt on, but things have gone well beyond the innocent early days of our collective quarantine all the way back in March of this year. Uh, And the conspiracy world has, as is its custom lost its collective mind in ways both familiar and strange. I'm going to let Matt handle some of the misinformation we've been getting on the science side of things, but uh, before I do that, uh, I'd like to introduce you all to some of the ways in which COVID has come to intersect with the anti-occult conspiracy, a topic I have thoroughly analyzed in a a series at the start of this year that uh, I just so happened to have been in the middle of uh, when the pandemic first struck, and, and then I did a series of plague episodes. Here we are now. So the pandemic is really fertile soil uh, to grow a conspiracy theory. And this is something I didn't get into much back then. In part, I think, because there just wasn't enough distance for me to be able to reflect on it. Uh, but, but now here we are in November. Uh, I've had some time to think this through. So 
This is how this all works culturally. Conspiracy belief comes from two currents of motivation. First, the belief that we as individuals are losing our agency, that our freedom, which some conspiracy peddlers call our freedoms in the U.S., uh, they're being taken away from us. Mask mandates and social distancing and the shutting down of segments of the economy can be read as a loss of freedom and is read that way by conspiracy theorists. Certainly, none of us are living our regular lives. Many of us are annoyed and even angry about it. Um, I teach and work and podcast in a beautiful theater on the Eastern Shore. I have not set foot in that theater since March 13th. Uh, When I think about what I've lost in this time, uh, that springs to mind. It's it's really that room that keeps springing to mind and and the distance I have to have from my fellow podcasters and uh, from, you know, the theater, the live theater that I I used to make and can't make. Um, But I guess that that, that really does have to be balanced against the extra time I've gotten to spend with my daughter um, since uh, we haven't been able to have childcare, for example. Anyway, I digress. Since we're annoyed, since we're angry, since we've lost things, we start looking for someone to blame. We don't really... (laughs) Okay, so I digress again. We don't dwell on the things we might be grateful for. Like, for example, that I've had extra time with my daughter, or uh, that I've got myself a Nintendo Switch and (laughs) have indulged in in Hollow Knight. Uh, These are things I I could be grateful for. I'm not making my commute. Uh, I'm spending more time with my child. I'm spending some time with the, uh, the Hollow Knight. But instead, I think about the theater, and I think about uh, the the loss of live performance, and I think about that I'm podcasting from a closet, and, you know, so are my my whole crew of folks are podcasting from their closets or pantries or wherever they're getting the best acoustics uh, across the shore. That's where we live. Um, And that's really an error, I think. It's a spiritual failing in me and in in others uh, that we need to address. But nevertheless, getting back to that angry anger, people are angry. I mean, this is undeniable. People are, you can see it in your social media feed. People are, have come, I think, a little unhinged, especially in the United States as we get closer and closer to this election, which is now on us. You know, and people have a right to be angry. I mean, there are people who are out of work, uh, people who have been out of work, people who have lost loved ones. Uh, the, the anger, you know, is not misplaced. So on top of of this anger and seeking someone to blame and this feeling like we've lost control of our lives, we also have the second tier of this, the second prong of this, is a loss of faith in authority. Now, the loss of faith in authority, I'm going to break down into two pieces as well. So subsets here. The first is loss of, of faith in the government. In many countries, including the United States and the UK, Sweden, Russia, and Brazil, it feels as though the government has failed to protect us or to provide for our health. In the face of this pandemic, malfeasance or incompetence at the highest levels of government appear to have caused avoidable pain and loss. Trump voters don't write into me and tell me that you disagree. Uh, you can disagree, but it the appearance exists. Whether or not you want to agree with the narrative in the media or whatever, uh, there is the widespread appearance that that government has failed us. Even beyond that, I mean, the election of Trump in the United States is part of a feeling that government has failed uh, and Trump being uh, this sort of 
outsider figure, businessman, non-politician, um, who is now, a, of course, a politician, having been uh, the president for four years. But this is an anti-government, anti-authoritarian, well, I don't want to say anti-authoritarian, anti-authority perspective, because we don't want to conflate authority with authoritarian. A government need not be dictatorial. There are many different systems of government in the United States. Our chosen system is democracy. The second prong is science, and the scientists who science. And the U.S. scientists have already been having a tough enough time over climate change and anti-vaxxers, but then COVID came along and poured a big barrel of salt into that particular cultural wound. COVID revealed a difficult truth about science, that it involves a lot of trial and error, and that science is not God. It is not all-knowing and all-perfect, and it cannot conjure the solutions to our problems at a moment's notice. Science is the work of humans who make guesses. They guess wrong. They muddle their way toward answers that are often incomplete, and on and on. Those who have sought to endow science with the qualities of a god have been left out in the cold, and those who bristled at science's pretensions to anything like an all-knowing status have decided to toss the baby out with the bathwater. Science isn't perfect, so it must be nonsense, say these baby-with-the-bathwater folks. There's no middle ground here. But really, the middle ground is where we find the truth. Science is imperfect, uh, but it's also a very reasonable way to seek solutions. Conspiracy theory has gained strength in this environment, as it has throughout history. This is not a unique uh, moment in terms of the rise of conspiracy theory. It's feeding on anxiety over our compromised agency, our distrust of government, and our new secular master narrative that science should have all the answers. I'm about to break these ideas down, but before I do, it's worth saying that some criticism of both government and scientific master narratives are deserved. Culturally, we need more than either of these can offer. That's why I podcast The Occult. Art, philosophy, and spirituality are much healthier ways to address the inadequacies of our chosen authorities, though. So I would rather see a world where we have science and government and art and philosophy and spirituality critiquing science and government, but allowing us to keep them rather than ax them. Let's get back to those conspiracies. In the world of conspiracy, the simplest explanation is the best. This is what Michael Barkun calls parsimony. I don't mean to say the conspiracies themselves can't be complicated, but their motivation can often be summed up in a single goal that unifies all their supported disparate activities into one effort. We could say that the virus was caused by a fluke transmission from a bat or a pangolin, which is a kind of Chinese armadillo that looks kind of like an anteater. A fluke transmission to a human, which has probably happened hundreds of times before, but this time happened in a way that allowed the virus to transfer from human to human, and by fluke we mean entirely predictable events, since historically pandemics tend to happen roughly every century, and so we were due for a fluke. We could say all that. But that's really complicated. Instead... It's so much easier to just say, Bill Gates did it because he's the Antichrist. Reality is complicated. Pangolins and anteaters and bats and flukes and non-flukes and history. The fantasy of the conspiracy theory is so much simpler. Bill Gates, Antichrist. Four words, done. Perhaps the most pervasive occult argument related to the virus concerns vaccines. 
this is actually a relatively new development in the world of conspiracy theory. There are religious objections to vaccines, but these don't tend to take the form of a conspiracy plot. Religious opposition, largely among Christians, is based on objections to the use of aborted fetal tissue to create vaccines. The rubella and rabies vaccine were developed using lung cells from an abortion conducted in Sweden in June 1962. Vaccines for hepatitis A, chickenpox, and shingles were developed from an abortion in the UK in 1966. Also a polio vaccine that is not incidentally used in the United States. Christian proponents argue that these abortions were not performed in order to harvest the cells. So there are some Christians who oppose this anti-vaxxer attitude. They think it's moral uh, because it's sort of like organ donation. We didn't perform the abortion so we could get the cells to make the vaccine. The Catholic Church, for its part, has formally accepted uh, the use of vaccines despite these origins. There are, of course, also groups who claim a religious exemption because of the fundamental tenets of the religion, uh, which ascribe to a kind of faith-healing Christian scientists most famously do not believe that any medical interventions are necessary. Healing can be achieved entirely through Christ. Outside the Western world, the Taliban have actively opposed the distribution of the polio vaccine door-to-door in Nigeria, Pakistan, and Afghanistan. Fatwas, uh, or legal rulings by the Taliban uh, against vaccination, have argued that it was an American plot to sterilize Muslims and that the vaccinations averted the will of God. Although it's unlikely that you know the higher-ranking Taliban officials believe these things to be true, actually what they think is uh, that vaccination teams are spying for their enemies and facilitating airstrikes by supplying targets. That's why they're opposing vaccines in those areas. So anti-vaccine conspiracy theories actually do not tend to be based on religious grounds. So I've, I've cited those cases of, of religious objections. Those are generally principled um, ethical arguments. They're not really conspiracy arguments. The conspiracy arguments tend to fall outside of the grounds uh, of religion focusing more on distrust of doctors and scientists. The first anti-vaccine societies were founded actually in 1879 to oppose school vaccination policies. The first vaccine, which was a dose of cowpox to inoculate against smallpox, was introduced into the United States by Dr. Benjamin Waterhouse and uh, was based on the work of Edward Jenner in 1800. Waterhouse experimented on his own children before publishing his findings. England passed the, uh, its first vaccine statute in 1853, and in the United States, the first law requiring vaccination to attend school was passed in Massachusetts in 1855. In the 19th century, a majority of vaccines administered were relatively safe, but this was a time period when the creation, storage, and application of the vaccine was really not especially well regulated, uh, nor were antiseptics used on arms or needles, since they wouldn't be invented until the end of the century. So... There were some good reasons to worry about vaccines, even though they presented a broad good for the public health, given how deadly smallpox was. Many medical doctors joined the anti-vaxxer movement at that time. Uh, This was not especially surprising, on on top of these things I'm talking about, uh, because uh, at the time doctors were still debating the germ theory and wondered whether stench or filth carried disease rather than microorganisms, which were, let's remember, invisible to the naked eye and so kind of difficult to believe in especially for empiricists. 
More recently, in 1955, the Cutter Pharmaceutical Company, one of many companies responsible for distributing Jonas Salk's famed polio vaccine, distributed 100,000 doses in which the virus had not been properly inactivated, which resulted in 40,000 infections and 250 cases of paralysis. Unlike the smallpox cases, the polio vaccine harmed out of corporate malfeasance and not ignorance on the part of academic science. It's really better to compare these infections to cases of salmonella and mad cow rather than the MMR and chickenpox vaccine my daughter receives. The vaccine, like a hamburger or a head of romaine lettuce, was not in and of itself dangerous, but the way it was handled and distributed was. Like that romaine lettuce. Be careful out there. The modern anti-vaxxer movement differs from these earlier cases in that scientists and doctors now have broad consensus on the effectiveness and advisability of vaccines, and their production and distribution are highly regulated. Many believe that vaccines cause autism. Again, not out of corporate negligence, but as a matter of flawed design. Andrew Wakefield published a paper in 1998 in The Lancet in which he, along with 11 co-authors, suggested a link between autism and gastrointestinal disorders. At a press conference before the release of the paper, Wakefield questioned uh, whether the triple MMR vaccine could be related, noting that several parents had told him they'd immunize their child shortly before symptoms of autism began to surface. This is not great science, nor is a press conference the best way to release medical findings. Wakefield had accepted 55,000 pounds from the UK's legal aid board, who were actively seeking cause to sue vaccine manufacturers. This was a conflict of interest he never revealed to his colleagues. Subsequent studies uh, discovered that there was no connection between the timing of the MMR vaccination and the onset of either gastrointestinal or autism spectrum disorders. And the Lancet retracted the paper in 2004. In 2007, a General Medical Council investigation found Wakefield to have acted dishonestly and in callous disregard for the health and safety of the children in the study. The continued use of Wakefield's study amounts to the same necrophiliac impulses in the occult conspiracy community who revive Nesta Helen Webster's anti-Semitic Illuminati theories or Edith Starr Miller's anti-Masonic ideas based almost entirely on false evidence and hoaxes and now all but entirely disproven. For, for more on this and others, uh, I'm, I'm going to list a couple episodes before I invite Matt in. Uh, so stay tuned. Since the overwhelming consensus among disease scientists, most notably at America's Centers for Disease Control and the World Health Organization, is that vaccines do not cause autism, and yet some persist in this belief, this must necessarily amount to a conspiracy belief. Scientists, government agencies, and doctors must all be conspiring to conceal the truth from believers, because there is a grand master narrative that vaccines are effective and good for you. In large part, I am promoting such a narrative right now. So why would I lie to you? Why would the scientists lie to you? Why would the CDC lie to you? Why did the World Health Organization lie to you? Why would your pediatrician lie to you? It must be a conspiracy. If it's true, then it must be a conspiracy. In World Affairs, Zachary Goldberg and Sean Ritchie of Georgia State University make the case that anti-vaxxers who doubt the science of vaccines are more predisposed to broad conspiracy belief. That 9-11 was an inside job, that our current pandemic is an inside job, that the shooting of a gorilla in a Texas zoo was an inside job. Harambe, anyone remember? Uh, These folks are more inclined to believe those conspiracy theories than the rest of us. So really... 
anti-vaxxer ideology is part of a broader conspiracy theorist outlook and is not in and of itself its own uh, thought pattern, you know, or thought process based on uh, a series of of evidence-based conclusions. That brings us around to our our pandemic vaccine, uh, which is uniquely pulling together a religious mindset, uh, which again is is largely ethical and not conspiracy-based, and the anti-vaxxer conspiracy into one stream of thought. Fairly unique new innovation uh, in, in conspiracy design. The conspiracy is evolving. Russian director Nikita Mikhalkov uh, seems to have noticed that the patent number for Microsoft's human-powered crypto mining system, which somehow uses humans' physical and mental ability to generate computer power, which is kind of terrifying, but I have no idea what that means. The point is, the patent number was WO2020060606. Now, I don't know if any of this is true or if such a patent exists, or such technology even exists. I'm just letting you know Mikhalkov's theory. If I were promoting this as truth, you should absolutely expect that I explain all these things. But I'm not, so I won't, because it's inevitably very boring and kind of made up, and too much debugging can get tiresome after a while. The recurrence of the six to Mikhailkov is a sign that the devil is at work. The number 666, or a number of the beast, according to many millenarian Christians, although although not all, could be used to identify the Antichrist. The Antichrist would then use the same number to brand all of humanity. The theory goes that Gates is attempting, through his foundation, to distribute a vaccine to the whole world that will somehow microchip us so that he can monitor and control us. The Gates Foundation has been highly invested in the eradication of disease through vaccine programs, particularly in developing countries. The Foundation's website says of its vaccine program, We believe we can accelerate the impact of vaccines in low-resource contexts by cultivating deep expertise in the vaccine manufacturing process, quality control, and clinical evaluation. This expertise allows us to advise on more effective vaccine development programs and identify new areas of innovation to benefit multiple disease programs. I'm quoting directly from the website here. So so that's what the Gates Foundation has to say about their vaccine program. The foundation has been falsely accused of experimenting with unapproved vaccines on African and Indian children. However... It did fund a study at MIT, which would have allowed vaccine manufacturers to apply a dye that could be read using a cell phone application to determine which vaccines a child had received without the use of medical records. Uh, With the dye, no microchips were involved. uh, And this feels too much like a mark, though, even if there isn't a chip. But it's nothing like a smoking gun when it comes to pinning down an antichrist. A video of Bill Gates giving a TED Talk seven years ago It's come up quite a bit. It features Gates saying that humanity was not prepared for the next outbreak. But this isn't especially prophetic. Um, If any reasonable person was looking at the evidence, which we can now view in the clearest kind, kind of hindsight, that reasonable person would probably come to the same conclusion. This is not Gates issuing a prophecy. The Gates vaccine conspiracy is an effort to pull the events surrounding COVID into a broader super conspiracy narrative. This is often the direction the conspiracy theory winds prefer to blow. To truly capitalize on a parsimonious conspiracy explanation and simplify all of life's unpleasantness down to a single motive, we've got to draw all of our conspiracies together. In this case, Gates is part of a global satanic cabal whose aim is world domination for its own sake. 
This conspiracy is millennia old, going all the way back to the writing of Revelation. Tying Gates into an ancient satanic movement, along with the Catholics and the Gnostics and Aleister Crowley and Paul McCartney, that's the payoff. QAnon is a conspiracy movement enjoying its moment in the sun right now and can easily incorporate the Gates conspiracy into its belief that this satanic cabal or deep state is working to manipulate and control us to harvest hormones from our children's blood. Let me give you a second. It will certainly be easier to accomplish this if our children are all microchipped or carry cell phones. Let me give you a second again. Q's hero, Donald Trump, who is secretly working to undermine this satanic deep state, has projected disbelief in the seriousness of the virus in order to short-circuit the Microsoft founder's plot. Or at least if we're piecing together the various ideas of QAnon, this is what it amounts to. So in the United States, um, our our current president uh, has... uh, drawn significant doubt around the danger of the virus and and, uh, famously chooses not to wear a mask. This raises serious questions if the virus is serious. And so the QAnon movement, which uh, is not a conspiracy against Donald Trump, but rather in favor of Donald Trump, that he is, you know, this great hero um, secretly working against the deep state, albeit from the greatest position of power in the United States, uh, this movement, uh, in order to sort of make logical sense of his attitude toward the virus, has to argue that he is correct, that the virus is actually not dangerous, uh, as, as Mr. Trump promotes. And, uh, and then we ask the question, why? Well, the Gates conspiracy gives us a good reason. The virus is not dangerous, but Gates and company want us to believe it is so that we will take their vaccine. So goes the conspiracy theory. For those of you who don't know much about QAnon, it's an open-ended alt-right conspiracy theory stemming from an ongoing series of what are called Q-drops, messages from an anonymous source claiming to be an official in the Trump administration revealing the inner workings of the deep state. Q is particular about distinguishing his views and those of the Anons. So Q does the drops, the Anons are his followers but he also endorses fellow travelers on Twitter, Fox News, and in the Catholic Church. All adhere to a conspiracist worldview. I'm not saying Fox News, Twitter, and the Catholic Church uh, (laughs) broadly, uh, but individuals on Twitter, individuals within the Fox News organization, individuals within the Catholic Church may adhere to beliefs uh, that mirror Q's uh, narrative, and so Q will drop those uh, connections in in the Q drops. Now, this conspiracist belief, uh, to me, is is best articulated in Q's October eighth drop. Nothing is random. Everything has meaning. I'm quoting there. Nothing is random. Everything has meaning. This sentiment sentiment was uh, posted alongside a social media feed, literally drawing red lines like a detective gone mad between otherwise unrelated posts in the feed. Nothing is random. Everything has meaning. It's the credo of the conspiracy theorist, distilled. I agree that everything has meaning. <laughs> I, I, I may agree that nothing is random, uh, but the reasons I agree are, are spiritual. I, I don't think that everything has meaning because there are intentional agents uh, in the human world seeking to undermine my freedom. I think that everything is is potentially connected because there's a Taoist unity to creation, as, as Helena Blavatsky suggested and others. Um, 
so we need to differentiate the conspiracist articulation that everything has meaning. By that, the conspiracists or conspiracy theorist, I should say, not the conspiracist, means that intentional agents are attempting to manipulate you in every aspect of your life. Everything doesn't have deep spiritual meaning. Everything has uh, nefarious, secret, intentional meaning. On October 30th, Q posted a letter written by Catholic Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano. Since I got to read this letter, I have to assume this was either an open letter or Q works in the mailroom at the White House opening the president's mail and then tweeting it. Vigano, who has publicly professed belief in a New World Order movement executed by a deep state, argued that the pandemic's purpose was to instill panic in the world's populations in order to restrict freedom. Uh, He was the apostolic nuncio to the United States from 2011 to 2016. Many officials within the church have since begun to distance themselves from the archbishop because of his comments, but his conspiracy theorist perspective shows the degree to which conspiracy can filter up to people in real positions of power. Again, this isn't new and has happened throughout history. See, for example, the plot to execute the Knights Templar in the medieval period, but... It, which was conducted by various figures within the Catholic Church when the Catholic Church was politically uh, far more powerful and figures within the French court and around Europe. The people in high positions of power buying into conspiracy theory, and, and I'm talking about the medieval period. So we shouldn't say uh, because people in positions of power are buying into a conspiracy theory, that makes it true. It wasn't true then. I doubt that it's, I, dra- I, I, will, I am arguing that it is not true now. In his letter dated October 25, Vigano argues for a nefarious Great Reset orchestrated by an evil elite in which Gates will trade access to a vaccine for individuals' consent to carry a health passport or digital ID, presumably for purposes of contact tracing, but actually as a means to curtail our liberty. I'm quoting him. Those who do not accept these measures, he says, without citing any source, will be confined in detention camps. From Q's perspectives, the liberal deep state, specifically the Democratic Party, have been working to worsen the effects of COVID. In one drop, Q claims that five Democratic state governors forced patients who had contracted COVID to convalesce in nursing homes where the virus then spread. On the 16th of September, Q says the virus is part of a Democratic plot to bring about an Anarchy 99 design. I forgive you if you do not pick up that reference because it is in fact, and I applaud you, I suppose, (laughs) if you do. It's a reference to a, or your memory, I should say. It's a reference to a 2002 Vin Diesel movie in which the villain attempts to use a weapon of mass chemical destruction to cause global chaos. If anyone knows about the secret plans of the deep state, I've always felt it has got to be Vin Diesel or whoever writes the movies that he used to star in. For Q, though, COVID seems real, at least insofar as it harms old people in nursing homes. But the Democratic Party, the public face of the deep state, has manipulated a relatively harmless virus in order to scare the public so that they can steal the 2020 election from Trump. On September the 20th, Q claimed that Democrats were extending the pandemic lockdown so that they could then question the legitimacy of the election when Trump won, which, to Q, is apparently the inevitable result of America's democratic process, despite the fact that Trump only narrowly won the first time. In short, the Q theory is essentially the Gates theory, with the caveat that the virus isn't actually all that dangerous. But whether it's deadly or our fear is the product of the deep state's lies, it pretty much amounts to the same goal, to tag and control us. 
it's important to compare the Q theory and Gates theory with actual conspiracies to see the difference. Real conspiracies to undermine public health for selfish ends do exist. Purdue Pharma's role in the opioid epidemic, for example, or DuPont Chemical's sale of Teflon coating on pots and pans, despite their knowledge of its fatal effects on plant employees and neighbors. Unlike the Gates conspiracy, these plots do not tie into any narrative grander than the greed of the chief executives at the time these travesties were committed. There is no millennia-long plot to poison people with Teflon. And unlike the satanic deep state, it doesn't explain every awful thing in its victims' lives. Just the overdose or the cancer, which, in fairness, are bad enough. To understand the Gates conspiracy or anything Q offers, we have to buy into a vast plot that goes beyond COVID itself. Gates didn't just cause COVID for greed. He caused COVID in order to distribute a vaccine, in order to monitor the population, in order to harvest a chemical in our children's blood, in order to keep Hillary Clinton and George W. Bush alive forever. The plot is complicated, so that the motivation can be easy. Gates, Clinton, etc. are simply child-devouring adrenochrome vampires. That's why they've constructed this vast, complex chain of actions and reactions. In real conspiracies, as opposed to these imagined ones, the plot is often easy, with a far more complex motivation. DuPont and Purdue knowingly sold something they knew was harmful in order to make money because they wanted more money. That's the whole plot. But why did they care more about profit than human beings? The question of motive is complex, philosophical even. Since we can't just call them vampires, but have to acknowledge that the villains at DuPont and Purdue are real human beings, like you and me, we have to wonder what caused their respective messes. It has something to do with corporate structures and the rise of neoliberal capitalism and lax state regulation and the way their mothers and fathers raised them. The conspiracy is real. The plot is simple. The motivation is complex. The conspiracy is fake. The plot is complex. The motivation is simple. And speaking of reality, I'm going to switch venues now. Uh, we're going to switch to an interview now and uh, bring in Dr. Matt Hatkoff, microbiologist. Uh, and Matt is a member of the, uh, the emergency response team uh, at uh, Chesapeake, where I teach um, and uh, co-teaches uh, my course on uh, fringe belief. Dr. Matt Hatkoff is joining me, microbiologist, uh, and this is the second time we're talking to Matt. The last time we talked to Matt was on our plague and pandemic episode, which I recommend to you all because, Matt, you are an expert technically on the actual Black Death, yes? That is correct. My PhD was actually studying the bacteria that caused the Black Death and the subsequent plagues that followed. Now, let's start out uh, by just letting folks know how right you were. Now, this morning you went and listened to that episode from March. Now, this was March, uh, like March 14th or so, right when the pandemic started. And at that time, uh, you just told me we had 57 cases overall in the state of Maryland. Yeah, so I went back and I and I double-checked. I wanted to see if I was accurate. And at the time, we had 57 total cases in the state of Maryland, which is where um, Rob and I live and are recording this podcast to give you an idea, as of yesterday morning, Maryland has reported a total of 146,995 total COVID-19 cases. Ooh, how things have changed. So what, what other predictions did you make on that episode? Um, so I was talking about during that episode, this was right before New York City, um, the hospitals had been basically overrun by 
you know, an, an outrageous number of uh, coronavirus cases. And I basically said that New York had reached the point of no return, um, that it was inevitable that the hospitals were going to be overrun. And unfortunately, that unfolded just uh, weeks after I made that unfortunate prediction. Um, that morning of the recording, Governor Hogan in Maryland had just shut everything down. We had basically gone into stay-at-home um, orders, and the rest of the the country followed. I was hopeful that at that point we may be able to get ahead of the curve, but I said in the worst-case scenario, it's already out of the bag. And I said there would be anywhere between thousands or tens of thousands of cases every single day if we didn't get it under control. Unfortunately, I am, I underestimated where we currently are. How how far? So let me get the exact numbers for our listeners. Now, again, we're recording this on uh, Election Day, November 3rd, 2020. Um, the number of cases, the high, so this is just recently, this was a couple of days ago, the United States alone recorded 99,750 new cases of coronavirus. That is significantly higher than anything we saw in the April surge and is about 30,000 cases a day higher than what we saw in the July 2nd surge. So what can we look forward to here? And, and I use the words look forward to advisedly. So, you know, we can sort of start where um, Europe tends to be about two to three weeks ahead of the United States. So if I, I sort of take a, you know, United States centric approach just because. Of why, where... why is that real quick, Matt? Why is Europe ahead of us? I, I think they experienced the first surge sooner. Um, and, I mean, they never experienced a second um, summer surge like the United States did. And it's just one of those, I think tricks of sort of numbers really they 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 do just seem to be slightly ahead I, I can't give you a great explanation why so it came to them first and almost by the law of patterns it it, it then resurges with them earlier than us on the same sort of time scale right and to give you an idea i mean europe had this under control in the summer when the united states did not so europe ex- uh, ex- experienced a spring surge like the United States did. And then over the summer, they had very, very low cases almost across the board. And now they are experiencing almost universally in every country an unprecedented surge that far surpasses what happened in spring. Now, I don't want to put you on the spot here, Matt, because I didn't mention this in our pre-show uh, messages, but do you know anything about Sweden? Because uh, we have a lot of Swedish listeners and they did not shut down did they have different results? I mean, I know that a lot of people, more people died in Sweden, right? So I don't have the Swedish numbers off the top of my head, but I believe they abandoned the herd immunity approach because of exactly what you mentioned, that they had uh, a much higher uh, mortality rate than many of their European counterparts. So they changed course. They did. They, you know. I see. And I'm not sure where they're currently at. But they they decided that the herd immunity idea was not going to work out so well. Yeah, it doesn't really work out for for this uh, virus. It's, um, in my opinion, borderline unethical because you are exposing people to a known infectious agent that is deadly. So why does the herd immunity approach not work out? Because we've started to hear this as an argument for what the United States should be doing. Um, There's a couple of reasons. Um, The first is... Even with the best evidence right now, uh, when we recorded initially in March, we were I was estimating about a 3.5% case fatality rate. 
it's at about two and a half percent, so slightly lower. Um, that's equated to over 1.2 million deaths worldwide just thus far before this current surge. Um, and the idea is that once you become infected, you are immune for life. Now, that varies between various infectious agents. And unfortunately, this one's novel. We're, we're about month eight or nine of the pandemic, and we're learning that reinfection is possible, although most likely highly unlikely. And we simply do not know how long the immunity lasts. And beyond that, this sends a disproportionate amount of people, this being the coronavirus, to the hospital, overwhelming our first responders, our doctors, our nurses, and our hospital staff. And we know from Italy and from New York City, where we had the two massive surges thus far, that when the hospital system becomes overwhelmed, the uh, mortality or the case fatality rate of this infection skyrockets. So by letting more people become infected, we're essentially condemning more people to die from the infectious disease. I see. So uh, again, back to back to the surge. So how long is the surge going to last? What, what, what can we anticipate? All right. This, this is um, using some of the data. So to give you an idea, um, we'll start with Europe. France is three times higher currently than what they experienced in the uh, in the spring. Italy is five times higher and going up. The United Kingdom is four times higher. Spain is twice as high. Germany is three times as high. And this is daily cases. So when Italy was overrun, they were experiencing 5,000 new daily cases. They're now experiencing 25,000 new daily cases. Um, now, we have a little bit better idea of how to treat individuals infected with this. Testing is also much, much better now than it was in March. So we're catching asymptomatic individuals, individuals who will never progress to a severe disease, but it does not bode well for the hospital system staying intact. They are, they are starting to shut down. And when we experienced the spring surge, we shut down. Now in the United States, we are just gearing up. Our seven-day rolling average currently is, is the new metric we're following is higher than any single day of total cases in the spring or the summer. We're seeing reports from the Midwest uh, and places like Wisconsin, uh, North Dakota, where hospital systems are becoming uh, overtaxed. They're starting to use some of the surge or emergency hospitals that have been set up in the interim. Um, and all of the best folks out there, I think, are predicting this surge to probably last at least until mid-December here in the United States, maybe longer. It's hard to predict when we have things like Thanksgiving, Halloween, and uh, the sort of December holidays all rolling around, since those tend to be congregate gatherings, which we now know easily spread this virus. So now I just want to, this is an argument that I've heard in, in a few different sectors. Now, you, you know, I, I look at, I am a person who studies conspiracy theories and things. So uh, these are not necessarily reputable sources, uh, but, but also, you know, like newspapers and stuff. The idea that the virus is becoming less dangerous, is this a thing or is hospitalization, like you're suggesting hospitalizations are also going up, which says to me that it's not just that we're catching more cases or more people are asymptomatic, but that the virus itself remains as dangerous as it was before. I don't think there is any indication that this is becoming less dangerous from any reputable source. Um, you know, if we looked at, we'll use um, March for an example. We saw very high hospitalizations, but 
they were a very large percentage of the total cases. And that's because in March in the United States, it was almost impossible to get a test for coronavirus. So the only people being tested were those going to the hospital or those showing severe symptoms. They were the tip of the iceberg and we were not seeing what's below the water. Now we're seeing a much larger picture of the iceberg, although not a true picture. Um, so we're seeing more cases. It's not that it's becoming less deadly. We just didn't see them before. If my listeners are 25, 35, 45, should they still be concerned? Uh, yes, they should still be concerned. So uh, I use the Maryland statistics. It's a little bit easier for me to access. Um, sorry, I'm looking at the exact numbers. Under 39 in, in the state of Maryland, this still has a case fatality rate of 0.2%, which is still significantly higher than the quote-unquote normal flu, the seasonal influenza, which it is now also flu season. Um, it, that's for 39 and under. If you're looking for 40 and older, the total case fatality rate in Maryland is 5.3%, which is shockingly high. And for our most vulnerable, our elderly population over 80, the case fatality rate in Maryland is 28%. So by keeping the young folks safe, especially around the holiday season, by staying home, by staying away from crowds, you're not possibly picking up an infection and then spreading it to grandma and grandpa at Thanksgiving and then unwillingly probably, you know, getting them very ill. Yeah, I mean, because the conspiracy argument that, you know, I talk about in the first half of this episode is that the virus is dangerous for people in nursing homes, and it's not especially dangerous for the rest of us. And uh, essentially that, you know, the Democratic Party uh, is using the virus to shut down the economy to uh, affect the Trump presidency. I just don't see any evidence of that. I mean, a one in 200 chance of dying is not something that I'm willing to take in my mid 30s. And so we don't really have that on a regular basis. Our chin, you, your, yours and mine and, and my listeners who are, you know, 19, 20, their chance of dying has gone up. Their chance of dying has gone up. They're more likely to die from coronavirus than from the flu. Okay. So even if you're 19 years old. Even if you're 19 years old. In every, in every age category, coronavirus seems to be worse. than. So you're really rolling the dice more so than you were before. Yes. Yikes. <laughs> and it's going to get worse. Um, I mean, using some statistical analysis, um, and this is just, you know, my prediction, that in the United States, we'll probably see somewhere between a daily count of 120 and 200,000 cases a day before this current surge, this third surge is over. Let's talk to a couple of groups here, Matt. So let's talk to folks, first of all, like you and I, who are able to work from home. What should we be doing? Keep working from home. Whenever you go out, you should be wearing a mask. Uh, there are enough masks, cloth masks. You can buy them from any vendor. Save the N95s for the medical professionals who are dealing with sick individuals. But we now know that cloth masks um, are highly effective in stopping the spread of this virus. Continue to physically distance from individuals you do not live with, meaning keep a six-foot buffer at minimum. I still have not dined indoors since um, March, and I have not had anyone over this, my house, uh, be, since Rob came over to record the last po podcast in mid-March. Remember? <laughs> Remember when? <laughs> the, you know, my goodness. distancing and mask wearing are still the, the two most important things we can continue to do for the duration of this pandemic and even after a vaccine comes out. 
Yeah, our audio files may notice uh, that when Matt and I first recorded, yes, we were physically present and using my mic system. Today, uh, we are using uh, Zencaster and, and recording through the internet uh, from, from houses that are within walking distance of each other <laughs> for safety. Uh, so now, talk to my folks out there who are, uh, we have folks who are janitors, folks who are waiters, folks who uh, work for grocery chains who listen. What what should they be doing? Well, first of all, I want to thank all of them for continuing to work during this time. They are, they are on the front lines of this, um, keeping society going. The best thing that they can do is continue to wear a mask, make sure anyone they are around is wearing a mask and try as best as possible to stay um, away from any individuals they may be working with, you know, keep that physical distance buffer. And then in their social time, just, you know, stay safe. It's hard for everyone with the holidays approaching, but parties, indoor activities, they're just, they're not a good idea right now. And last but certainly not least, in fact, most in, in, in my book, uh, are folks who are working in healthcare. What should they be anticipating? Are there places of the country where we might not see as bad a result, or you think this is going to be countrywide? Um, for the first time, I believe this is going to sweep the nation. So in the um, spring surge, it was mainly in the Pacific Northwest and the Northeast. In the summer surge, it was predominantly in Florida and the southwest of the United States. As of 11-3, this recording, 25 states have over 25 cases per 100,000, which according to any you know leading sort of group of scientists, I think Harvard, Johns Hopkins, it is called for new stay-at-home orders. Um, there are only four states below 10 per 100,000. Um, So the rest of them are sort of in between, which is a sort of a danger zone. It's accelerated community spread. Um, So for the first time, this is sweeping the entire United States. And I don't think there is any spot that is safe. I think a lot of the rural areas of this country managed to stave off the virus until now, but it's everywhere. Let me just reiterate, Matt's uh, thank you to all the folks out there on the front lines of this. Anybody who is working with the public right now, and particularly uh, those folks working in healthcare, uh, we are very grateful for your work. Uh, and uh, we are very focused on uh, sharing news on how folks can keep you safer. Yep. It's, you know, it's going to be a long winter. Um, as we mentioned in the last uh, podcast, you know, Jon Snow, I'll turn to the fictional Jon Snow. Winter is coming. Uh, the long <laughs> night is coming and we need to stay home. Um, you know, as we, as we turn to the vaccine, I want us to have one little disclaimer beforehand. The vaccine is not the silver bullet. Once we get this, the pandemic is not over. We must still continue physical distancing in some way and wearing masks for at least the foreseeable future, meaning at least all of 2021. Okay, so let's wade into the the vaccine uh, conversation here. Uh, I want to start with uh, a question that we visited, I think, in the last episode a bit, but it's worth bringing up again. So, you know, I opened this episode, uh, I'm talking about the idea that the vaccine, not the vaccine, that the virus itself has been uh, manufactured, that maybe it's part of some grand plot uh, in order to get people to take vaccines. This, I think, is an important and dangerous idea, or potentially dangerous idea, uh, because it could prevent people from taking vaccines. 
What's your take on this virus just being a natural fluke of, well, maybe not a fluke. It's uh, historically we were due for one, right? Uh, but, but how can we be sure that this uh, was a product of nature? Well, there's a number of ways that we can do this. I mean, we are now sure that it came from uh, bats within like the Wuhan region of China. It wasn't the pangolin? It was not the pangolin. It was not the armadillo. It's a bat. And and one of the reasons Off the hook. <laughs> one of the reasons we can do this is we can go into the bat population and we can actually collect samples of uh, you know, blat bat blood or viral specimens, and we can actually sequence the virus and compare it to that, which allows us to sort of create a family tree. And you can clearly see the lineage of this the SARS CoV two virus, and you can see that it, it came from the bat population which holds in line with, you know, SARS-CoV-1 or SARS and the MERS uh, sister virus to this one. And this is something microbiologists have been doing since March? Yeah, they were probably doing it even before then when this started. I mean, this started about a year ago now in China. Right, Um, right. So so now that we have a year of research under us, we're very confident in that assertion. Yeah, I talk a bit in the in my opening about science sort of having to muddle through. Like our expectation is that science is just going to kick out, or medical science is just going to kick out an answer for us right away, that it's always got complete control of the situation. But we've been doing a lot of muddling through. But it seems like we're making progress. We, we are making phenomenal progress. I mean, when we look back at this, when this is done, this will be the single greatest human achievement since we put man on the moon. Dealing with this pandemic and creating a vaccine in the in the time frame oh, that we've time been doing it, yeah. So let's talk about vaccines. Um, has is Bill Gates manufacturing the vaccine in order to tag us all uh, as part of an end times tribulation? I would make a joke, but this is too serious. No, I mean, first of all, which vaccine? Uh, I mean, the conspiracy theorist, Matt, does not get into details very often. Uh, the idea is just that the Gates Corporation insofar, well, the Gates, the Gates Foundation, sorry, the Gates Foundation insofar as they are actively involved in the distribution of vaccines in third world countries in particular, in the developing world, um, will is somehow behind the creation and distribution of a vaccine that will contain some kind of microchip uh, with which Gates and company can track us. I mean, I will say unequivocally that is not happening, cannot happen, will not happen. Um, It would require uh, a conspiracy larger than I think most people could probably even comprehend. Um, And, and I, you know, this has come up before in conversations that Rob and I have, and I say, we're already chipped and tracked. We all have iPhones or smartphones that share (laughs) our location. I mean, we have social media. I don't know what else they could get out of us from, putting something inside of Apple watches and all of that measure our, you know, bodily functions at some level. So that is not, it's just not how vaccines would work. It goes to an awful lot of trouble. I mean, these vaccine manufacturers are also, they're competing with each other, right? To try to profit. At, at some point there is, I think there's a little bit more cooperation this time around than, than in previous times. Um, but still, yeah, I mean, first one to the market with an effective vaccine is going to be set for quite a while. So this would require coordination on the part of all vaccine manufacturers, ultimately, if if this was a conspiracy. Absolutely. And I mean, even some of the leading vaccines are, are you know, two or three companies working together to make a single vaccine. So massive, massive cooperation that I don't think could be achieved. 
So let's say uh, it's January, it's February, maybe it's March, and a, a, one of these pharmaceutical companies has completed a vaccine. Um, what, what should we look for? How, should we feel safe taking this vaccine? Well, there, there's a couple of notes here. Um, there are, let me get the number right, uh, five what I would call um, front runners for the vaccines that are in phase three clinical trials, which is the final phase before an initial approval for distribution and use in the general population. Um, the ones that are generally talked about are the Pfizer and the AstraZeneca slash Oxford vaccine trials. Um, there's also the Moderna vaccine, uh, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine and the Novavax vaccine. Now I won't bore the listeners with the details of all of them. There are certain differences between some of these vaccines that Johnson and Johnson's got the single dose, right? Johnson Johnson does have the single dose vector based vaccine, whereas Moderna and Pfizer are using a two dose mRNA based vaccine that has particular problems for distribution and storage since it requires a deep freeze until almost right before administration, um, which is a problem for compliance and distribution worldwide, especially to areas that do not have you know, refrigerated trucks everywhere and minus 80 freezers that are easily accessible. Right. Um, but, you know, these are all, all of the ones that I mentioned are in phase three trials. And I believe at least Moderna, Pfizer and AstraZeneca, possibly Johnson Johnson are expecting to release their phase three findings sometime in the month of November or December. If they are promising these vaccines, all one or all four of them, depending on the efficacy and the safety, could be released for use into the population in December or January, which would be literal record time. It would be 12 months of work. from They started working on them in January to basically December or January again. And typically, how long should it take? Well, it could take... 10 years. Oh, well. <laughs> um, but we, we did have a bit of an advantage with um, SARS the first time around in the early 2000s and MERS. So a lot of these uh, vaccines had been um, sort of prepped with or worked on with the sister viruses. So it required less of a modification than if this was a virus that we had never heard from or never seen before. Okay. And our technology is significantly better now than it was when we were working with, you know, polio. Um, mRNA vaccines are a relatively new group of vaccines. They're a little bit easier to manufacture uh, or to, to make for a specific virus than would be an attenuated virus or some other type of vaccine. Now, there's two concerns that come up with vaccines. Uh, the first one is the sort of anti-vaxxer argument that they can be dangerous to our health. What, what, and certainly corporations um, aren't, don't always have our public health at, at heart, so there, there's some legitimate concern here. The anti-vaxxer argument is turns out to be not especially scientific, um, as I've laid out uh, in the first part of the episode, but... Should we be concerned about the safety of these? Um, if they go through proper vetting from the FDA in the United States or the similar agencies in the other nations, then no, I, I'm not going. I'm not concerned. You know, if Dr. Fauci here in the United States uh, says this one is safe and the FDA has vetted it, I'm taking it the minute it is accessible to me. 
So we can trust the CDC and the WHO. Yes, we can trust them. What I would be leery of is governmental agencies uh, rushing the trials, which I don't think we have necessarily seen, cutting corners with safety and then using emergency use author emergency use authorization without necessarily going through the FDA by basically going around the regulatory agencies. That would concern me. We've seen some of that happen in Russia and China. Um, and I'm not sure how effective or safe those vaccines are. Um, but I have every faith in the world with the entire group of ones that I mentioned. And by no way are any of them paying me to say that. <laughs> yes. I mean, the beauty of this podcast is uh, we are we are not funded by any uh, large corporation or small corporation. <laughs> right. And, you know, I have real hope. Um, a number of these trials were actually paused over the summer which many people took as a sign that they had some terrible side effect. There is always going to be some type of side effect with a, a vaccine or individuals are always going to get sick during trials. The fact that these trials were paused, these uh, cases, which were minimal at best, one or two per, per vaccine, were heavily investigated, um, were not allowed to sort of move to the next step, these vaccines, until they were cleared really tells me that the regulatory agencies and the companies in these cases is, are doing their due diligence to make sure that people are safe. And I believe it was the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine, the individual who experienced the most severe side effects, from what I read, received a placebo dose and not the actual vaccine. Right, because they would pause the trial even if you got sick from some other source. Right. So at, at that point, the participant and the doctor, these are double blind placebo studies. Nobody knows except a secret list that locked away who got the actual vaccine and who got a placebo vaccine. Um, so there's a certain amount of people that no matter what happens throughout the course of a trial are going to get sick from the either the vaccine, the placebo or just because of normal nature, people get sick. So now let's talk about efficacy. That's the second prong of this. Um, how can we be sure or feel confident that we have an effective vaccine and that we're not going to you know, get our shot and then wander out into the world and catch COVID? Well, that's where this next set of data is going to be really important. I think anyone um, who, who is familiar with how this works knows these vaccines most likely will not be 100% effective. Um, there's going to be a second and third generation vaccine that come out in the subsequent years um, that are going to be much more effective. Um, this does not, you know, we'll, we'll talk about safety. This is not the same thing as safety. This is how well does it protect you against coronavirus illness? So we shouldn't be worried that, you know, we would get sick from the vaccine itself, right. but we should be concerned that it's only going to have a percentage of efficacy against as protection for us. Right. So let's assume that, you know, a virus is, uh, I'm sorry, a vaccine is 60% effective. That means if 100 people take it, 60% of those will not get um, either severely ill or noticeably ill. Now, the qualification that I have to say is that does not prevent them from being infected. That's a major difference. So if I take the vaccine, I may get a little bit of virus in my system from natural causes, right? From going out into the grocery store. I'll never know I'm sick. I'll, I'll clear it very quickly, but I can still get infected with it. With, and I could still possibly, possibly spread it to a very close contact, which is why after these vaccines come out, physical distancing and masking is still going to be part of our world culture for 
for a, a good bit of time. And real safety seems to come from both me and you having the vaccine. If we're in the room together and we both have the vaccine, we are safer, right? Exactly. And that's the idea of herd immunity is if by some combination of natural infections that we've experienced for the last eight months worldwide, plus the vaccine, plus physical distancing, plus masking, you're essentially reducing the chance of the viral spread down to very, very small levels. And then it won't actually disappear but it will recede into the background and it it will not spread as effectively. Um, You know, we have a flu vaccine that comes out every year because the flu vaccine mutates. Luckily, the coronavirus doesn't seem to do the same thing. Uh, And obviously, we still know that flu is around within, you know, societies. Measles is still around. Polio is still around. This is never the, the, you know, the silver bullet, but this is a tool in the tool belt to prevent infections, to reduce the severity and the duration of the illness as well. Yeah, we don't worry so much about measles or polio these days. Why Why is that? It's because we've achieved the, quote, herd immunity, that if there's an infected individual, there's enough people around them or surround them in their community who are immune to it or vaccinated against it that they can't spread to another susceptible individual. So there are still cases that occur, but we have enough immunity within the population that it's not a major public health threat, generally speaking, in the developed nations. So when will we start to see something like normalcy? When, you know, I I talked at the beginning about getting back to live performance and and that kind of stuff. When can we start to see that happening? You know, I'm, I'm remaining hopeful about this, that if the data remains optimistic for one or two of the vaccines, um, that in, that comes in November or December, and we start to get a distribution plan starting in January, starting first and foremost, with our nurses and doctors and CNAs and hospital workers, um, and then roll out to more public-facing positions that hopefully in the summer or fall will hit a sense of new normalcy, but it probably won't be back to quote-unquote normal until 2022. Okay, fair enough. So next year, could we look at like phased-in normalcy, like a gradually uh, ramping up normalcy? I think so. I mean, let's put it this way, that if I get the vaccine and my wife gets the vaccine, let's say next spring, next summer, I'm going out to eat at a restaurant. I will feel confident um, that that will be a safe activity to to resume, again, with physical distancing um, and and probably with masking, obviously not when you're sitting down and eating, but... uh, in the other, you know, situations. But thinking about, you know, you and I going into lecture with a mask off, that's not happening until 2022. Probably not. And even then, I think it's going to be something that gets ingrained into our culture, like we see in some of the, um, you know, Asian nations where people just tend to wear a mask. I mean, to give you an idea, optimistically, flu this season is significantly down from where it was a year ago. So the fact that we are masking and pushing flu vaccinations we are actually stopping another infectious disease uh, compared to where it normally is. Just by good practices. Just by good practices, which tells you, I use that as a sense of hope that can show you how effective adding a vaccine to our current tools is. Because the only difference between last flu season and this flu season is masking and physical distancing. So if we add a coronavirus vaccine to that, I, I think we can see similar efficacy if the vaccine is is pretty decent. 
But I mean, it's going to be hard, especially in American culture, to make the mask a regular part of our lives. <laughs> it, it will. But even if a, a certain percentage of people wear a mask, it still can help. So you might anticipate, you know, maybe not in the classroom, but, you know, if we go to the airport in 2022 uh, during flu season, we might put the mask on. Right. It's it's not a bad idea to to stop, you know, the f- spread of flu. When we're in these very crowded spaces. Exactly. Yes. I think um, I know all of your listeners are probably tired. We all are. Um, It's been a a long eight months of this pandemic, and and we're really just starting to enter the heart of it. I know early on there was a lot of talk of, you know, the second surge, the second surge or second wave. Um, we're, We're in that now. And historically speaking, this is going to be significantly worse than what we experienced in the spring and summer. So I just, you know, want all of you to keep masking, keep staying away from people. I know it's hard in the holidays, but be safe. Try not to travel as much. Try not to see as many people over the holidays as you normally would. Think about a Zoom Thanksgiving um, or Zoom any other holiday that you choose to enjoy. Um, yeah, Christmas, I think, is going to be the tough one. I, I, I do, too. Um, but the more we stay in now, get tested before, quarantine for two weeks. If you have, you live in the United States and you have Thanksgiving plans, I highly suggest you go into a self-imposed quarantine on Monday, November 9th, and then you should get tested if available uh, somewhere between the 12th and the 17th of November before seeing any family members or loved ones uh, the week of Thanksgiving. Good advice. Stay home, make some sourdough, listen to podcasts, put on the video game machine, relax, relax. Relax. <laughs> and if you can stay away from those uh, frontline workers in the grocery stores and in the restaurants and all that, uh, just just be kind to them. Put your mask on and, and uh, be mindful of their safety uh, and try not to stand too close to them for too long. All right. Thanks, Matt. I really appreciate this. Um, backed by popular demand. Uh, I, I think if, if folks would like to reach out, they're welcome to uh, contact us uh, on Instagram or Facebook, and we will pass any questions on to Dr. Hatkoff uh, to respond to. Uh, we really appreciate your coming uh, back, Matt. Thank you for having me and stay safe and uh, wear a mask. Yeah, yeah. We're posting this today. I'm going to get this out as soon as possible. As soon as we're done here, I'm going to sit down and edit this together and get it out. Folks, stay safe. Stay sane. Uh, we know that this is times are tough. People are losing it uh, every which way and for lots of very good reasons. Um, but, but when you feel yourself starting to foam at the mouth, just take a deep breath. <laughs> take a deep breath. Put your mask on. <laughs> and do something that gives you peace and calm. Hopefully, it's listening to a little bit more of Occult Confessions. Uh, We'll catch you next time. We will have a regular episode this Friday, uh, and that is going to be our episode on the gin. So this is a true special. We're not taking anything away from you. Uh, We're going to keep on keeping on. Thanks again, Matt. Thank you.